Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. My parents asked me at one point about somebody I was working with and I gave the answer, oh yeah, he's a very competent surgeon. And my parents freaked out. They're like a competent surgeon. Like competent was to them, like, I don't want a competent surgeon. I want a really good surgeon. And we had to have this whole conversation about like, yeah, the, the bar for competence is phenomenally high here. And so all of us are competent surgeons, you know, there, there are a few like exceptions on either side of that bar that really exceed the, the norm, but to, to be board certified or whatever to, to be out in practice, to finish like that, that bar is really high. And so when I say competent, I mean, yeah, damn good, like good enough to be out there doing surgery on live people. Like that's a really high bar. And that's also satisficing, right? That's saying that this person is not the best surgeon that has ever lived. And if we limit ourselves to only the best surgeon that has ever lived, there will be one practicing surgeon in the world at any given time. Therefore, we set the bar really, really high, and anybody who clears it gets to go do this job. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Fred, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Yeah, thank you, Srini. I'm excited to be here. I am absolutely thrilled to have you here. You have a new book out called Better Than Destiny, and all of which we will get into. But as you know, from having listened to the show, I will want to start with something, you know, that has absolutely nothing to do with the book. And that is, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Yeah, well, what my parents did was farming. So I, I grew up on a farm. And, you know, I think there are kind of a lot of classic things you can take from that, which is, you know, get up early, get your work done. Uh, and that certainly shaped habits and, and ideas about hard work for me that, that served me well in college and in my career afterwards. But I think 
a, a lot of what I learned from them is probably unintentional on their part, but the idea that you could both do something like farming in a, in a deliberate and kind of self-improving way that, you know, my dad had journals of when he planted things and what the weather was like and how that turned out. And he would refer back to those in, in the next year and adjust strategy, look at, you know, weather patterns and which field had produced more corn in one year versus another and, and adjust. And so that idea of kind of iterating and also iterating over long periods of time, uh, I, I learned a lot of that from both of my parents, uh, and, and just the realities of farming and, yeah. you know, we'll get to talking about decision-making at some point, I think. And another thing that I learned from them that comes up for me a lot now is understanding the difference between the things you can control and the things you can't and being mm -hmm. able to set yourself up to be resilient. You know, when there's like literally a flood, our farm would flood. And being ready for that in a way that you couldn't prevent it, you couldn't stop it from damaging things, but you could plan around being able to absorb that damage and just carry on. And, and that, I think, uh, has also become a, a powerful lesson and, and idea in my life. What? Uh, misperceptions you think we have about sort of agriculture and farming. It's hilarious. My dad's an agricultural professor. I'm literally sitting in his office because uh, he's not <laughs> teaching this semester. So he told me I could use his office. But I think that you know, most of us go to the grocery store and we don't really think about where this food comes from. We're just like, oh, it's on the shelf. But obviously it comes from people like your parents. Like, what do we not see? Yeah, I think what we what we miss is how unpredictable and hard it is to get that food there, you know, e even with the giant, you know, my, my parents are a small family farm sort of operation. Uh, but even with the giant factory farming operations, you know, the, the amount of work that goes into getting anything to market is, is phenomenal. I think, and I think we miss that with not just food, but almost any product that we buy, just the logistics behind planning it, actually making it a real thing in the world, and then getting it from where it was made to where it's used, the, the infrastructure behind all of that. And then when you add in the fact that food is perishable, you know, refrigerated train cars and trucks and all the steps along the way is just mind-boggling how how complex it is to get you know carrots unless they were grown unless you're picking them up at your at your local farmers market there's there's a massive infrastructure to get you your milk and carrots and whatever else yeah all the things we take for granted it's, it's funny because i when i talk to artists i always say like you are going to spend two years working on this thing that somebody is going to spend two hours or two days consuming you know, like we watch a movie, right? And it takes two years to make the movie, but people watch it for all of two hours. And that's why I always say you know, the bulk of your focus should be on a process, not on the outcome, because the outcome is so out of your control. Yeah. And, and I think 
that's, you know, that probably points back a little bit to the, the farming example that I was talking about, um, with my dad keeping journals and, you know, there's so many forces outside your control, some of which are the end consumer and some of which are just the world you live in. And with farming, it's weather and, and market forces and all kinds of things. Um, but with art or writing or any creative endeavor, it's the same thing. You, if you're not clear on what your own day-to-day work is, if you're just thinking about how you want other people to respond to it, it's going to be really hard for you to put anything out in the world that, that has any traction or value to other people. Speaking about speaking of creating value for other people, what did your parents teach you about making your way in the world? They encourage any particular career paths. I know you're a surgeon. And as we were joking before we hit record, that's like every Indian parent's dream come true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, I kind of went the other direction, right? So from, from farm to, and then engineer, and then my, my big career change was from engineering to, to medicine. Um, so I kind of hit the highlights as far as, uh, you know, professional certification. Uh, but I think your question was about my parents actually. And, and that another unintentional lesson, I think that I've reflected on a lot recently was my dad actually, he grew up in Queens, New York. And from his immediate family, I don't think any of them ever lived any further West than maybe, maybe somewhere in Pennsylvania, you know, and when he was a young adult, he left the East Coast and came all the way to Oregon to become a farmer, to go to, he actually went to college for, uh, for animal husbandry and agriculture and, and became a farmer. And so that story in the background has there's kind of an implicit permission in that as a, as a child to say, yeah, you can just walk off on a completely different path than any idea that your family or immediate social group as a child thinks is normal. And if it works for you, like my, my parents are farming is hard work and they have had a great life. They are happy with what they've done and they had, happy days in their day-to-day life and to see that and know that that came about because my dad just completely departed from anything that his parents or brothers and sisters would expect or even think about i i think is a a powerful lesson for me in in just the idea that i can try stuff and and go do other things yeah, you know, I was uh, on Chase Jarvis's show when my second book, An Audience of One, came out, and he had asked me to list patterns, you know, between the people I've interviewed. Obviously, a thousand interviews, you start to have sort of pattern recognition capabilities that kind of go off the rails and almost make your brain feel like it's going to explode at times. Uh, but one of them I saw over and over was people's ability to overcome their social programming and defy the expectations of the world around them even if those expectations would please other people. And yet, I've also seen the opposite in so many people's lives. And I'm sure you've probably heard me say this before, you know, 
uh, being at a place like Berkeley, I was kind of stunned how, you know, you're surrounded by all these really brilliant people who are top of their class in high school, yet somehow it's a breeding ground for conformity. Uh, how in the world do people cultivate that capacity to overcome their social programming? I, I think it's reflection. I, I think it's, it's hard, but it's simple, if that makes sense. It's, it's not complicated, but that doesn't mean it's easy to do. And, and that's to get clear on the difference, to recognize that it's possible that what you're moving towards is different than a goal you would set for yourself. And I think some of that comes from a degree of maybe intellectual humility is a good estimate term for that. The idea that none of us come to our ideas in a vacuum, right? What, what I think are my ideas are ideas that I have put together from everything that I've learned up to this point. And that's true for my wants and desires and, and values as well. And once I admit that, then I can reflect on, okay, how, how much influence are the, these outside ideas having on the decisions about where I want to go? And, and one, if you're willing to engage with that question as, as an actual thing to, to admit to yourself that it might be different what you would choose for yourself versus what you have chosen thus far, then you can, then you can engage with it and, and look for the gap. Yeah. I think it, it's funny because it's kind of a double-edged sword, particularly when we're talking about the world of self-improvement. You and I were just talking about this before here report and the fact that so much of this work rarely takes context into consideration you know, we have this sort of, oh, you can be, do, or have anything narrative, which frankly, I think is bullshit because I think we're, you know, being sold a bag of goods when people tell us that. Um, and I always wonder, like, how do you balance that sort of need to be somewhat realistic, but also idealistic simultaneously? Yeah, well, I, I think you might have answered that question already with the idea of process versus outcome, which mm -hmm. is recognizing that it's important to have, I think, big goals or values in your life that you're working towards or trying to live up to. I think it's important to link those things up to day-to-day -day actions. But I, I also think that it's important to kind of hold that lightly, that what I can control is not whether I achieve my big business goal or exact, you know, like I'm a father, I have two kids. I can't control how my kids turn out, so to speak, whatever that means. But I can focus on process. I can try to be a good dad and I can reflect on what I did and said last week and try to do better this week in living up to my own values. And mm -hmm. what, what comes of that will, you know, time will tell, but that's the only part I can control. Talk to me about how you go from being an engineer to a doctor, to a life coach, to an author. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's a fun question for me because I think we get caught up a lot in look, you know, not necessarily looking at people's resumes, but we, we like to hear the story in those bullet points, right? Like 
okay, farm boy goes to college. I got a degree in physics and then became a systems engineer. And then I decided to pivot into a new career and went into surgery and ultimately am, am taking time now to do this coaching and writing. Right. And so that, that sounds super clean. And looking back, you can draw this arc. Right. Yeah. But, but the interesting parts are this, are the parts between the bullet points. Right. When I graduate from college with a physics degree and I think, shit, what do I do with this? You know, like I studied this because it was interesting. Um, but now I have to like pay my own rent and stuff. You know, like I, I have a physics degree. Am I going to still keep working? opening the bakery at 4 a.m. or am I going to put my physics degree to use? And what does that mean? Like what I hadn't planned for that. And so eventually I found this job engineering um, and it was interesting stuff I was working on, but it was clear to me pretty quickly that it wasn't what I wanted to be doing for the next several decades of my life. Um, kind of the the routes for advancement were towards management and away from the, the actual tinkering around that I, that I enjoyed about the job. And there were a number of things that was just like, this, this is not what I want to do for another 30 years or more. And so I started looking around and, and that's kind of the next, that's the next interesting point, right? It, and the part that's not on the resume is that complete feeling of discomfort of, okay, I, I made a big decision about a career. And I don't like how it turned out. How, how can I do that better? Right? Like how, um, if, if I just go about it in the same way, looking for something that's kind of interesting and available right now, and then just jump on that, it seems about as likely that I'm going to fail at having it be the thing I want to do for a long time. Um, so that's kind of when I went up a level and tried to understand, you know, Surely I'm not the first person in history who struggled with picking a career and started looking around for information and advice on, on making big decisions like that and got some good advice about thinking about long-term future and long-term goals around kind of more around lifestyle rather than job title. Like, what do you want to actually be doing with your time? What do you want your life to look like sort of questions? And went through a bunch of options and eventually chose medicine because it fit with what I wanted to do as far as, you know, working with other people as well as science, as well as creativity um, and kind of hands on stuff. You know, I went into surgery, which in a way, you know, has some direct connections to, to engineering and, and kind of physically solving problems. Um, and so then I, I went through my surgical training. And along the way, that's when I started to kind of consciously, continuously try to learn about, hey, that worked. That idea of looking for evidence for good ideas about how to make a decision, like that's making my life better. And I was applying that along the way in planning how I was going to approach, approach an academic year or you know, what I was, how I was going to look for training programs after medical school or jobs. And along the way, I also learned more and more about how to read scientific studies and understand what was a good study and 
how to apply the things from those those research articles. And so I was just kind of gathering all this stuff initially fairly selfishly, right? It was just like I I was trying to make decisions in my own life and finding that this stuff was valuable. And so just piling more and more of that information in to my own life and and trying to organize my life using that kind of best practices, I would say, for decision making or goal setting or whatever else. And then along the way, I I started to figure out that I enjoy teaching that. When I was a surgery resident, I got to work with, you know, with medical students and with junior residents and teaching them. And then once I came out into practice, I was working with residents and students. And a lot of the most interesting conversations to me were about not medicine. They were about how are you doing? What are you interested in? Where do you want to end up? You know, now that you're God knows how many 27 years into your formal education, like, where are you going with this? What do you want to do? And, and those conversations were very interesting. And over time, that evolved into kind of organically people coming back to me. And then not just people I'd worked with in the past, but colleagues and friends telling me, you know, we had that conversation about making this decision, whether it was a business thing or an educational thing or, and that was really useful to me. And, and I'd like to talk to you about where I go with that next. And so that evolved into this understanding that there was kind of this overlap between something that I really enjoyed and something that had traction and was valuable for other people. And that, that became, you know, something that I started to do rather than when it came up but to set aside time and actually put some effort into into changing my job around so that I could write and work with people doing this, having those kinds of conversations. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. You know, one thing I wonder about is how studying physics shaped your thinking. Because I remember Naval Ravikanth, he did this podcast, which I've referenced before, titled How to Get Rich Without Getting Lucky. And he talks extensively about the fact that studying physics is an incredibly useful framework for thinking in other areas of your life. And, and he said, you know, if you read Richard Feynman's books, you'll have a really solid foundation for thinking clearly, which I can tell you from my high school physics class, I was just like, why the hell is this so confusing? I don't understand any of this. And yet, when I heard him say that, I was like, damn, I really want to understand this now. Uh, and I just wonder, like, how does that shape your thinking? Like, what does somebody who studies physics see in areas of life, not just outside of physics, but in just in terms of life in general that the average person doesn't like? How does that change your lens on the world? Yeah, well, part of me wonders, as you ask that question, whether it's causation or correlation, Right. Fair enough. Yeah. So somebody who's super interested in dissecting the world down beyond biology, beyond chemistry, down to the component parts at the level of, you know, electromagnetism and particle physics, like that already is just, you know, that's how some people look at the world and some people look at big picture stuff more easily. Um, so I think there's probably something in that, um, just kind of what's, what's inherently interesting to you becomes the tool that 
that will shape how you, how you approach a lot of problems in the world. But as far as the education itself, I think it's analysis and wrestling with questions that we can't answer or at least can't answer yet. And to me, I think the, the combination of trying to explain something at that level of detail and trying to be rigorous about how that's done, you know, and the scientific method, testing, generating a hypothesis, testing it, recognizing that you're wrong or that something didn't work the way you thought it would and adjusting how you see the world based on that. That's highly valuable in, in business, in art, in, you know, if you want to write, you got to be able to do that, right? You got to be able to put ideas out and see what lands and what doesn't and adjust how you're delivering your message. If you have a message you want to communicate. But at the same time within physics is buried this understanding that we don't really know how the world works. We're getting better and better and better at explaining it and predicting what will happen when certain other things happen. But there are these fundamental mysteries. The reason physics is still a science is because there's a whole bunch of stuff we haven't figured out yet. And I think that's also an important idea for working in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Where if you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to be willing to face the fact that you, no amount of planning is going to explain and predict everything that is going to happen for you and your business. And, and so I, I think that's a, that's a very valuable realization that is just buried in the pursuit of really any science. But I, I think physics, you get down right to the, the granular, like what makes the universe be what it is version of that question. What, it's funny because after I finished reading your book, like I just had this sort of moment, but where my key insight, I think, from all of it was there are no simple answers to life big questions. Right. Yeah. I, and I think we we want there to be simple stories, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. that, that's it's how we think. And but that's, you know, you and I were talking before about cognitive biases, like that's where we make the mistakes is when whether consciously or unconsciously we choose based on simple explanations. The first thing that comes to mind, the, the easiest version of the story to tell or understand. And all of us recognize that that's rarely the truth of how the world works, despite the fact that it would be nice if it were simple. And, and I think that's where, where process, again, matters right? Is that that's how you account for all the details and complexity is have something to come back to that keeps you on track with what you're trying to do. Well, speaking of education, you mentioned that you had kids, and I think this will make a perfect segue into the concepts in the book. You're a highly educated person, obviously. Uh, you're in one of those rare professions where we don't want somebody who learned how to do what they did on YouTube. Although my sister said that she'd be surprised. She told me she was in uh, her first year of residency and uh, you know, a doctor walked in and, and the patient was like, has she ever done this before? And the doctor looked at her and said, like, yeah, she just watched a tutorial on YouTube this morning. But, yeah. um, there are a lot of good videos. Teaching your there. kids. 
uh, particularly, uh, you know, given what you know about how to make decisions, given your background, how has that influenced the way, the way that you're encouraging your kids to think about, you know, their ability to make their way in the world, given that probably the jobs they're going to have don't even exist yet? Yeah, fair. I, I think part of it is, you know, and I think you, you've had Annie Duke on your podcast, mm-hmm. maybe even a couple of times, right? So yep, her, absolutely. her concept of thinking in bets, I think is yeah. just an enormously valuable idea for everyone to get their head around. And my, you know, my kids, when they were younger, they went through the phase of, you know, telling when I said, no, you can't do that or no, that won't happen of loving to tell me, well, anything's possible. And my, my catchphrase back to them, which I'm sure they're sick of hearing now years later, uh, but is now kind of a family joke is yes, possible, but not probable. Right. And, and, and yeah, I was like, this is, this is a, just bury that in every conversation that we, we don't know how things are going to turn out. And some things we're really good at predicting. And even if you're 98% certain, you're going to be wrong 2% of the time. Otherwise, your certainty is poorly calibrated, right? That's your, your model is wrong if the outcome doesn't come up the, you know, for the underdog, the accurate percentage of time. And, and so I, I think I, when I'm conscious of it, which, you know, as a parent, I can't always say I'm, I'm, uh, you know, partic- 100% mindful 100% of the time of what's coming out of my mouth, how and when. But, uh, but when I'm conscious of it, I definitely try to embed that idea of we're making plans based on what we think is going to turn out best. We're making our decision based on what we think is going to turn out best. And, but we don't know. And, and I think that is, like I said, a super valuable lesson for anyone. Yeah. Well, it's funny because one of the things that I I realize parents ask children that is just an absolute ludicrous question, especially from the time they're five years old, is what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm thinking to myself, you're asking a kid who's not even lived a fraction of their lives to predict how they want to spend the rest of it. And I remember I just wrote this Facebook status update saying we should stop asking kids what they want to be when they grow up and ask them what they're curious about. But it made me want to, you know, bring back a clip from a conversation I had with David Epstein. Take a listen. We will underestimate future change at every time point, even when we're very old. But at, at no time is that more true than from about 18 to the late 20s. That's when you undergo mm-hmm. the fastest time of personality yeah. change. And so essentially right at the start of that period, we're telling someone pick now, which, which is really asking them to pick for a person they don't yet know. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly in a world they can't yet conceive unless they have a crystal ball that most people don't. And so I think it's a particularly bad time to make ironclad long-term plans. And we should be much more oriented toward do the thing that's going to give you a high information signal about whether it fits you or not. Hey, it's Trini. I want to tell you about something new that we've been building for you. The Unmistakable Collective is a monthly membership for writers, bloggers, podcasters, and content creators who want to build an audience for their work. 
As a member of the collective, you get access to exclusive content that we don't publish anywhere else, three monthly events, including office hours, Q&A sessions with former podcast guests, and regular workshops to help you develop the foundational skills you need for building an audience. And it only costs $30 a month. If you want to build an audience for your blog, write a book, or start a podcast of your own, go to unmistakablecreative.com slash collective to learn more. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash collective. I thought that that was a perfect clip to kind of segue into this conversation about decision-making. Because one of the things you say at the very beginning of the book is that of all the skills you have, decision-making is arguably the most important to your future happiness. Choices about your career, your relationships, and how you spend your time will shape your life. The results of small decisions add up to big impacts. And yet, we make these massive decisions about how we're going to spend the rest of our lives when we've hardly lived afresh. And you've heard me talk about the college example of how college course catalogs are like a fast food menu where you're forced to choose from the options in front of you and completely blind to the possibilities that surround you. So why the hell do we never learn anything about this? Why is it that we only learn about decision making by making shitty decisions? Yeah, I don't know. And I, I know you're interested in and both ask a lot of questions and have a lot to say about uh, education in in general and and in particular i would say one decision making is a meta skill right it's a skill that affects your ability to learn or put to use other skills and so good decision making is going to lead to good development of other valuable skills and good implementation of the use of the skills that you have or are developing. And going back to the the education question, I can't answer the question of why we don't teach this. There are some organizations out there that are trying to change that, but educational policy in, you know, we're both in the United States, educational policy here is really, really fraught with politics with local considerations and i think the the idea that i would want to percolate out into the educational system is that you know people love talking about well we need to teach kids how to think not what to think and yet when we say okay let's stop teaching this particular topic that almost no one uses, right? Like, okay, learn t- trigonometry if you go to architecture school, if you even need to know it there, I don't know. But maybe instead of trigonometry, we could have uh, classes on decision-making, on here's here's the science of the psychology of how we make errors. What are the cognitive biases that are most likely to trip you up in your big decisions? And and how can you counteract those? And so I, I would love to see that. There are people working on it, but it's very hard to get implemented. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this idea of destiny. Uh, probably one of my favorite quotes from the book is when you say destiny is the assumption that there's one singular thing that's right for you now and forever. If you believe you have one grand deep purpose that you have to discover in life, you believe in destiny, whether you call it that or not. And I can't help but wonder if you've ever seen the movie Mr. Destiny with James Belushi based on that quote. I have not, actually. I'm going to put it on my list right now. But Well, 
what's so fascinating about that movie is he basically is this kid who is in the high school state championship baseball game. He's the final batter and he strikes out. And for the rest of his life, up until he's 35 years old, he always thinks about how that one incident would have made the trajectory of his life completely different. And so he ends up meeting Michael Caine, who's this like guardian angel at a bar on his 35th birthday. And he tells him that, you know, my life sucks and I'm 35. And so he gives him a glimpse and he says, okay, you hit the baseball. And so he shows him how much his life has changed when he hits the baseball. What he doesn't account for is the fact that his wife in his normal life hates him with a passion. His best friend no longer talks to him. And he realizes by the end that because of, he he forgets that, by the way, you forgot about all the good things. You don't account for the things that, you know, are good that happened because something like that didn't happen. Yeah, well, I I think, you know, we're coming back to a lot of the same ideas, but I, I think the, we, we like the simplicity of there being like one big decision or one big event that, that explains how things turned out, right? Like, yeah, Bobby went off the rails. He, he got into drugs. He made one bad decision and he was addicted and his life went off the rails when in fact the story is, you know, Bobby had a really hard childhood and he had no support and he was raising himself, uh, with, the friends running around uh, in the neighborhood because both his parents were working two jobs to try to make ends meet. And he had all these constrained choices. And, you know, that story is super complex and we don't like thinking through it. So we like to think, you know, if Bobby just hadn't made that one decision at that one party, everything would have been different, you know, or mm-hmm. if if this thing hadn't happened to me or if I had gotten that one, that guy got one lucky break and I didn't. And therefore, you know, it's it's totally unfair and not that luck has nothing to do with how things turned out or that. In like individual decisions sometimes have effects far beyond the size we expect them to. But but to look back on and construct the narrative around like two turning points is not how yeah. life works. And I think the. You know, a lot of your listeners will probably be familiar with kind of fixed and growth mindset ideas, right? This uh-huh. idea that we're either, you know, I'm either smart or dumb is a fixed mindset, or I can learn and I seek challenges to help me learn, even though I may fail at those challenges. That's a growth mindset. And I, I think the destiny idea, whether you call it destiny or not, if you're holding on to that idea of there's one true path for me, then and I'm either on that path or I've failed to find my path, one, that's really disempowering, right? That it's like you're either a failure or you're on a track that's barely even up to you. It's just laid out. And two, it's a super fixed mindset about the entire future of your life. But it's like, this is the way it's supposed to be. And that I, I just don't think that that's how the world works. You know, our, our decisions matter and the little decisions day after day, those are the things that add up to steering the course of, of where that path is pointed towards. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, like I've said, jokingly said before, when people would ask me what I was going to do after business school, I would say, all I know is it'll have nothing to do with the internet. Right. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you know, I, I, a friend told me uh, once I was a year or two into medical school, he's like, you remember that time, like six of us were coming back in, in the suburban from some hike or a party or something. And we were talking about like, what are you, what are you going to be doing in a few years? And you said, uh, 
I, I don't know, but it certainly wouldn't be anything like medical school. It's like, yeah, yeah, you just, you just don't know. And, and yeah. again, it's, it's a series of decisions and also circumstances, opportunities that you mm -hmm. didn't realize were going to come up and, and then deciding to take advantage of those or letting them pass because you're like, well, that's not, you know, I, I'm on a path this way. So therefore this random opportunity is a distraction, not a, not a chance to, to try something new and learn something. Then that's how I think yeah. you miss stuff with that destiny mindset. Yeah. I, I appreciate also the fact that you brought up the role that luck plays in so many different things, because I think that we really, particularly when it comes to survivor bias, we don't account for the role that luck plays. It's like, you know, you could have really good timing. That's lucky. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a really fortunate coincidence for Mark Zuckerberg that he was at Harvard when he was, you know, if it had been right. a year later or a year before, Facebook probably wouldn't be what it is. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think there's say, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. Um, one of the things that you say in the book about fixed versus growth mindset is that one of the easiest ways to change your mindset is to change your language. The research on mindset has highlighted that this simple psychological trick can move us in or out of a growth mindset. Now, when I read that, I remember thinking a question I wanted to ask you was so many people basically, you know, look in the mirror and recite false affirmations. And I always say false affirmations are like mental masturbation without the pleasure of an orgasm. Uh, so what's the difference between what you're talking about versus bullshitting yourself? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a difference between reframing something and straight up just making stuff up, right? Which is the difference between, you know, and the psychology studies, some of the most famous early studies from Carol Dweck, who wrote Mindset, um, are looking at kids doing puzzles. And if you tell a kid, oh, you did really well at that, you must be really smart. They that pushes them towards a fixed mindset where they believe they're either smart or dumb. And the, the effect of that is that they're less interested. They actively avoid challenging puzzles in the next round where they're given an option because they don't want any evidence to go out in the world that they're not smart already because they're viewing it as this dichotomy. I'm smart or I'm not. And anything I do can either support or undermine the idea that I'm smart. If you give other kids the same puzzles and you and they do well or poorly, they do exactly the same as the first kid. And you tell that second kid, well, you did really well on that. You must have worked really hard. So both of those, either of those pieces of feedback can be true, right? That you could be smart or not. You could have worked really hard or not. But if you tell a kid, I think you did well because you worked hard. That kid then becomes more likely in the next round to choose puzzles that are more challenging. Puzzles they're deliberately more likely to fail at because they are now, and you know, there's layers of research studies looking into, okay, that's what happens. Let's try to understand why it happens. But basically what comes out of that is once you're in that growth mindset, the idea that challenge allows me to grow now that kid is interested in doing things that provide learning opportunities rather than 
avoiding things that might expose them as not already knowing everything. And that I think, you know, you asked me, what do I, how, how do I try to use this stuff in my family life and raising my kids? That's another big one. And I think your, your point earlier about asking kids, what do they want to be when they grow up? I cringe every time somebody asks me that question or asks my kids that question with me around, because I think it's doing the same thing. It's, it's try, it's trying to get the kids to commit to a path and to form their ideas around the idea that that's a fixed thing. And like that changing the language around how we talk to our kids, how we talk to each other. And then I think to your point of affirmations, how, how people talk to themselves can be very powerful. But again, that's a reframing. That's not looking in the mirror and telling yourself, I am a business success. Right. While you're, mm-hmm. you know, you know, still sleeping on your parents' couch and, you know, $30,000 in debt when last year you were $20,000 in debt, you're not a business success and you need to face up to that. And but what you can do is tell yourself, I'm good at learning from my mistakes. Right. I, I don't make the same mistake twice. Or I try not to make the same mistake twice. I admit when I'm wrong and I, I learn from that. And that's a really powerful affirmation because now you're setting your identity to look for learning opportunities. And, and that is mm-hmm. the difference between growth and fixed. Yeah. Well, let's get into how these cognitive biases shape our decisions and how to counteract them. I think that that was by far. To me, probably my favorite part of the book, the fact that you highlighted each one, but you actually gave very concrete examples of how to counteract them. So let's start with sunk cost and status quo bias and talk about what they are and how to counteract. Yeah, so sunk cost will be a term that a lot of people who've done business education will be familiar with, but I think it is very applicable to day to day life. And this is basically the idea that we don't view things as a loss until we close out the project or the idea. And so we have a tendency to keep pouring time and energy and resources into things that are losing, that don't work for us, because we don't want to admit that what we've put in so far is wasted. And first, knowing about that helps, recognizing that you know, you can't get back. And this this applies to financial decisions. This applies to relationships. This applies to everything. You can't get back the time that you put in. Whether you continue on the same path or not, the money you've spent, anything non-refundable, time, energy, most of our money that we spend, not refundable. You're not getting it back. So you, it's hard to do, but the way to deal with that is to try to put aside what's come, gotten you to the point you're at now and look forward rather than looking back and saying, how do I justify having put all this effort into this relationship? You think, given where we're at today and where I want to be in the future, would I enter into this relationship starting today? Or would I continue on this project? If I came to it today, 
knowing everything I know about how it's gone so far and how likely it is or is not to succeed, would I join the project? And asking yourself, starting where I am now, do the future prospects make putting in energy from here forward valuable? Mm-hmm. And that, I think, it, it can be very hard to do, but that is the way to get out of the the trap. It's, it's the, if you're in a hole, stop digging idea, which is like, okay, this, yeah. this is going down. And the hard part is admitting it's going down. So if I exit now, I won't lose as much as if I just keep going down with it. And yeah, I, I, I've learned that the hard way. So we planned a conference in 2014 that was a massive success. It was a complete flop in 2015. And in 2015, I didn't account for sunk cost bias. By the time we got to 2019, I remember sitting in uh, an Airbnb in Boulder in November thinking, we've got to sell 500 tickets to get this to work. And we're at 25 and it's November. And I remember you know, our event manager was like, you have to be energetically invested. I was like, that's the biggest bunch of horseshit I've ever heard. I want to be, I'm financially invested. And at this point, based on the numbers, this is not going to work. And I was like, you know what? If we pull the plug now and refund everybody's money, we'll take a $2,000 loss. And you know what? That was the ultimate blessing in disguise because right after that, COVID started. Right. And I would say that even had COVID not started, right, that you're, that's likely better to take that $2,000 loss than keep pouring more energy and time into it and take whatever it would have been a $10,000 loss plus even more people that you had to pull the pull the plug on right yeah. and and that that's a really hard decision because it doesn't feel like a loss to us psychologically until we close it out you know it's like you can look at your stock portfolio and it's going down and down and you think oh that sucks but you don't take the loss so to speak until you sell your stock at that lower price and that same thing mm-hmm. happens to us psychologically where we can see something spiraling downward and downward, but emotionally, we don't wrestle with it as a loss in quite the same way until we take mm-hmm. the step to close it out. And that makes taking that step very hard. Let's talk about status quo bias. And I, I love the fact that you've had this very simple example from Adam Grant about browsers. Um, and it's funny because I am amazed at how often people don't question the defaults in their life. And the example I always come back to uh, is I remember moving to this apartment in Cardiff and uh, it had a shower with really shitty water pressure. And I was like, this is some bullshit. Like, why the hell does this not work? And I for a while, for about a month, I was just like, all right, my shower sucks. I can't do anything. And then I was like, wait a minute. I was like, what causes this? I was like, it's the shower head. So I literally went on Amazon and looked and people, you know, had written reviews of this. People said, this thing is like a fire hose. I'm like, perfect. That's what I need. And it was amazing. Like just that one little change in an apartment, because particularly an apartment, we think we're stuck with whatever the default is. So talk to me about the status quo bias thing. Yeah. So the example from Adam Grant, I think, is a a bit of a funny story and a simple one, which is that there's a, a correlation between success at work. And whether you use the browser that came on your phone or whether you've downloaded another one and and use an alternative. 
And so the question he immediately gets repeatedly is, oh, what browser should I use to be, <laughs> you know, to be more successful at my job? And the point of the story is not that there is one particular browser. The point of the story is that being the type of person who's willing to question the default and look for alternatives, as evidenced by changing the browser on your phone, also suggests that you're going to look for alternatives and not just cruise with the status quo in other areas of your life. And that that leads to, in the case of those studies, business success, that that correlates mm -hmm. with, with business success. And so I think the status quo bias can also, or the default bias, it gets called both things in different way, in different times. The way to help yourself avoid it is to try to take away the default option. Or if you can't literally take away the default option for yourself, try to view yourself as being at a T in the road rather than on a straight road with a branch off the side. And, you know, that's a, a vague metaphor. But if you're if you're considering saying quitting your office job to start doing freelance stuff, there's a strong bias to keep doing what you're currently doing. And the best way that I know of to, to fight that bias is to try to externalize yourself from your current situation, to imagine yourself as not having a job, but considering taking the job that is your office job versus taking the freelance route. And that puts us in a much different mindset, a, a much different cognitive space than thinking about continuing versus changing. And you can't, I think one of the errors that we make is thinking that by knowing this stuff, we avoid the bias. The bias is always going to be there, right? And, yeah. and that, but you can do things to try to mitigate its effects and uh -huh. giving yourself what they call forced choice, where you remove, remove the option or at least try to mentally separate yourself from the option that otherwise would be the default path is, is a way to significantly reduce the effect of of the default or status quo bias. So status quo bias, it sounds like also kind of, you know, um, it's similar to distinction bias, but you actually talk about distinction bias and you say by focusing on one option at a time, you're less likely to get distracted by the differences that are unrelated to your actual main concerns, especially the tiny differences that are only identifiable in a direct side-by-side -side comparison. So obviously, you know, when you're, let's take, go back to the freelance versus state of job example, I think that the temptation is to basically, you know, look at each one and compare. And you're saying that you actually will make a worse decision if you do that. Yeah. And I think you, you do at some point have to compare them on certain parameters, right? But I think where we make a mistake is we put them side by side first and look for the differences and then focus in on the differences. And that distracts us from the things that matter to us. And I think that when we're making a decision, one of the things that I 
push for is to decide before you get too far into comparing your options, decide what aspects of the decision matter most to you. And mm. the in the job example, it could be, you know, above a certain amount, salary doesn't matter to me, but schedule flexibility matters a lot. And but also benefits matter to me a lot, like whether I'm going to be able to contribute to retirement and what my health care coverage will be like. Those So there's a mm-hmm. small handful of things that I care about a lot and everything else is a secondary or lower consideration. Now, when I put those things side by side, I can look specifically at the, the features that matter to me. And those will be different for different people. And those will also likely be different than what's highlighted in descriptions of the job, right? And so what you want to do is... As you start to get excited by one option or the other, check back in with yourself and say, oh, there were only three or four things that I said were my most important considerations. Am I excited about this freelance gig because of something that was that's actually on that list, some combination of those three or four things? Or am I excited about this freelance gig because of a, a couple of blog articles I wrote and how excited those people were? But actually, when I compare the stability and the benefits, I'm, I would actually be a lot less excited about it and, and having yeah. that to refer back to. And, and where, uh, where distinction bias trips us up is the, the harder we have, the, uh, the harder we have to look for differences, the more important our brain thinks those differences are. Right. Our, our brain has evolved to assume that things we put a lot of attention to are very important to our survival. Mm-hmm. So if you see two things that are nearly identical to the point where it takes a lot of effort to even tell them apart, your brain is going to think those tiny, tiny differences that are probably way down the list of what's important to you. Your brain is going to start to treat those things as vitally important to the decision because you're putting a lot of attention into finding them and comparing them. And you may be missing the fact that the top 10 factors are completely identical between these decisions and you could move on. You can make a choice and move on. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny because um, yeah, I'm sure you've heard me reference the, the women with small dogs example. That's my major yeah. cognitive bias where it's like, Woman with small dogs, swipe left. So I want to hear your perspective on this because I got it from uh, Alison Schrager. And I remember when I told my friend Brian, I was like, hey, you know what? My theory is, you know, actually validated by an economist. So it's it's actually legit. He's like, Srini, that's still bullshit. You're not a dog person. Right. Yeah. And I think there there's a lot that could go into how we form those kind of filters, right? Our, our own filters. Yeah. And we have a tendency to look for the simple story, right? Let's, we can yeah, loop back to that. Where exactly. It's, it's totally it's, causation and correlation. Yep, exactly. And, and if you can put together a simple story, like, well, that happened two, twice in a row, therefore that must be yep. generally true. That's, that's easy and well-packaged and your brain's going to go with that unless you really consciously try to, to deconstruct that story. And that's, I think, exactly the the type of filter we all we all make those filters in our life 
this is something I've seen in publishing. The number of self-help books with fuck in the title in the last like, <laughs> year, like bookstores could have entire sections titled the fucking self-help books. Right. Yeah. Well, people confused the uh, popularity of Mark Manson's book with the um, exactly. strikingness of the title rather than the quality of his writing. And, and the fact that he had Absolutely. a massive audience before he put his book out, right? The fact that that book was a huge success. Yeah, there were all these variables surprising. that nobody accounted for. Yeah. 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 But people look for the easy story. It's like, oh, I've never seen a book with fuck in the title. So that must be, that must be the thing that did it. Yeah. So let's talk uh, about satisfying versus maximizing and mm. the peak end rule. So one of the things that you say is set your standards. Then once you meet them, stop, stop wasting more time, effort or money on getting more than you need. Move on to the next thing that actually matters. And there's a clip that I wanted to bring back from a previous episode with Ramit Sethi, where he talked about what he called making $30,000 decisions and asking $30,000 questions. Take a listen. Between reading the books of all the people I interview, writing articles, and managing my business, I have to deal with and process a lot of information. And one of the biggest causes of information overload and digital distractions in our modern lives is the way that we organize information. Using 20 different apps and sifting through folders is a bit like going to a different grocery store to buy every item on your list, but it doesn't have to be this way. If you've ever felt like you're completely buried by information overload or you can't remember everything that's important, then maximize your output with MEM, our new knowledge management course is just for you. MEM is the knowledge management app that helps you get a handle on everything from reducing information overload to remembering what matters and managing your tasks and projects more efficiently. In this course, you'll learn how to reduce information overload and focus on what's important, remember everything that matters with ease, and manage everything in one place and get more done in less time. I loved MEM so much that I ended up creating this course. And it's a perfect course for knowledge workers and creatives who want to take back control of their time and productivity. You can learn more about it at MaximizeYourOutput.com. Again, that's MaximizeYourOutput.com. Most of us have been raised to ask $3 questions, right? Oh, should I buy lattes, that alkaline water? Oh, I don't know. I want this uh, LaCroix, but the generic one is 13 cents cheaper. I was raised to think about those questions myself. Most of us have been raised to ask $3 questions, but we really should be asking $30,000 questions, the mm. big ones. That's what these rules are about. Those rules include things like, do I have a good job and am I paid well? Okay, That's important. Spend time developing those skills. Am I automatically saving and investing? That's important. That's going to be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Have I married, if I'm married or if I'm in a relationship, is it with the right person? That is massive. And that's actually one of my money rules, which is probably the most controversial one of all. No. But most of us, we're asking these questions. Should I buy a latte? Should I get an extra large instead of a large? When in reality, if we get these five to 10 big wins in life, right? We never have to worry about lattes or cheesecake or any other $3 questions. I thought that was a perfect segue into talking about this distinction between satisfying versus maximizing. Yeah, well, it's I I love what he has to say there. That I actually have a quote from him, maybe at the beginning of the chapter, with this uh, the stuff in it, which is most of us should spend a lot less time on most decisions and a lot more time on a few key decisions. And I think satisfying versus maximization helps with that. And the idea yeah. here is that good enough is in fact good enough. And 
an important point for people is to separate that from settling. Settling is taking in the idea of, well, this doesn't live up to what I wanted, but it's the best I can get right now, so I guess I'm fine with it. Or it's easy, so I'll take it, even though it's not up to my standards. Satisficing is very specifically not that. You can set your standards as high as you want. But once they're met, recognize that they're met. You have met your standards. Therefore, more is not better at that point. There's diminishing returns on putting more time and energy into, you know, this is the on Amazon spending two hours comparing reviews <laughs> for like which yeah. crew socks to buy, right? Yep. Was like, Been there, yeah, done that. Make a decision. Or, you know, I'm in the grocery store and it takes me half an hour to pick because there are 10,000 toothbrushes to pick from. Like, who the hell cares? Just pick one and move on. Good enough is good enough. And there's this, I, I have a, a story with my parents uh, on this, which I think illustrates it well as far as how high the standards can be, which was when I was in my surgical training. And my my parents asked me at one point about, so, you know, somebody I was working with and I gave the answer, oh, yeah, he's a very competent surgeon. And my parents like freaked out. They're like a competent surgeon, like competent was to them like, I don't want a competent surgeon. I want a really good surgeon. And we had to have this whole conversation about like, yeah, the the bar for competence is phenomenally high here. And so all of us are competent surgeons. You know, there, there, there are a few like exceptions on either side of that bar that really exceed the norm. But to, to be board certified or whatever, to, to be out in practice, to finish, like that, that bar is really high. And so when I say competent, I mean, yeah, damn good. Like good enough to be out there doing surgery on live people. Like that's a really high bar. And that's also satisficing, right? That's saying that this person is not the best surgeon that has ever lived. And if we limit ourselves to only the best surgeon that has ever lived, there will be one practicing surgeon in the world at any given time. Therefore, we set the bar really, really high. And anybody who clears it gets to go do this job. And I think that that to me is in fact satisficing, right? We're not we're not trying to say we can only have the literal number one best because what that leads to is none of us having access to a surgeon. And you can use that in all areas of your life. Picking your toothbrush, that bar is pretty low. You know, picking your college, that bar is higher than toothbrush, lower than surgeon. But you can set the bar at a place that it works for you. And once you've hit it, now you're just trying to go beyond that. You're putting resources in that if you admit that you don't have infinite resources, you could probably be using those resources better somewhere else rather than trying to exceed your satisfaction threshold. Let's talk briefly about hedonic adaptation. I mean, we've talked a, a bit about it you know, on the show before. You know, the interesting thing is I, I found, you know, just from reading this, I came to this conclusion that there's a bizarre paradox of hedonic adaptation 
because it's what it, it creates both sort of, you know, a combination of the drive to achieve with dissatisfaction simultaneously. And I, I've asked so many people, is there like any way to get off this hedonic treadmill? And I'm kind of beginning to think there isn't because that's that means we wouldn't involve and grow. Right. And, and I I would agree to the the degree that I don't I don't think you can make this not happen, but I think you can mitigate it and you can use it to your advantage in some situations. And I think the way you mitigate it is stuff we've all heard about, right? Keeping a gratitude journal. It it's well researched. It's a simple thing. And it works. It you know, reminding ourselves of the good things that we have and you know, to your point earlier about not paying attention to to the good stuff, but focusing in on that one negative thing, simply reminding yourself every day or for five minutes a couple times a week that you you have good stuff in your life, then your brain starts to look for those things. And that that to some degree offsets the fact that you become habituated to that you you normalize the stuff that you have even if you were excited to have it before it becomes your your new normal and and it doesn't excite you very much anymore the other way we can use hedonic adaptation is pretty counterintuitive and i i talk about this a little bit in the book as well which is that look in in psychology studies actually looking at tv with interruptions by commercials People actually enjoy, have more overall enjoyment of a good show that they like if it's interrupted by commercials than if it's not. Because when there's an interruption, you kind of reset and then you come back when the show comes back on and you are excited again to see it. Whereas if there's no interruption, that excitement, that kind of degree of pleasure that you're getting out of watching it, actually decreases over time and keeps decreasing until there's an interruption. And so our our common practice of trying to like not interrupt the things that we enjoy does work against us in some settings. And the flip side of that is also true. When you're doing something that you don't like doing, but you could interrupt, often we're like, oh, I got to take a break from this. I don't want to power through because what I'm working on sucks. Like, I don't want to fold five loads of laundry at once. I'm going to do them each one when they come out. You know, that actually works against us as well. Trying to break up the stuff you you don't like is worse than if you just powered through because the amount you don't, the amount you dislike it decreases. So you're your dissatisfaction lessens as you just keep doing this thing. And so if you know, if you want to be less annoyed by doing laundry, batch it. Do it all do it all at once. Fold all the loads of yours and your kids' laundry. Just keep piling them up until they're all out of the dryer and then fold them all at once. And that sounds miserable to a lot of us. We're like, I don't want to stand there for all that time. I'd rather do it in little bits. But if I do it in little bits, I don't like it. Each time I start, I don't like it just as much as when I started last time. But if I do it all at once, my degree of dislike fades as I just 
keep standing there folding laundry and it becomes kind of routine and I start thinking about other things. Now I'm less frustrated about folding laundry. And so you can you can flip it either way. Yeah, it sounds like I should batch all my bureaucratic bullshit that I have to deal with on a daily basis, like into one yeah. day. It's it's I, I think it's absolutely true. And and this is one of those things that didn't click for me for a long time, but once it did, it's like, oh yeah, this is this works. You know, put all put all the BS into a couple of hours and and hammer through it and and then get back to the stuff you really care about without those other interruptions. Let's talk about two other biases. I think these were really big ones, and we'll wrap things up by talking about how these actually influence our, our goal setting. Um, temporal discounting and exponential growth bias, which you know, was fascinating because I was just like, oh, perfect. Now I can use, I literally was like, oh, I'm going to use these quotes for my newsletter. <laughs> yeah. Um, so temporal discounting, uh, time discounting is basically that we value something less the further out into the future that we perceive it to be for us and that in particular the drop in value is really steep at the beginning so when you go from can i have something now versus can i have it tomorrow we really discount the value of something if we have to wait for it at all versus waiting for it zero so and the the great study about this, like, okay, I'll offer you $100 today or $110 tomorrow and assume we trust each other and you know you're going to get paid either way. The vast majority of people will take $100 today. But if I ask you, will you take $100 in 30 days versus $110 in 31 days? The difference is the same. It's one day. You're going to get paid $10 for doing nothing other than waiting one more day for your free money. Most people flip and they'll say, oh, yeah, I'll wait 31 days for 10 extra bucks. No problem. Um, And that idea, that bias affects us in lots of decisions, right? When uh, health decisions, we think, oh, yeah, this this is really important to me now. I really want this donut and and I, I don't care as much about what's going to happen to me a month or a year down the road. But I'll tell myself today, oh, a month from now, I'll pass up the donut. But today I'm not going to. And so uh, those are related in a lot of our decisions. This this idea of not wanting to wait affects a lot of things. And then, sorry, what was the other... Uh, the exponential growth. Bias, oh, which yes. I think is like sort of the perfect follow up to that. Yeah, it's uh, and this one is just wicked powerful. We, you know, and, and at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, we talked about this a lot. Like we do not inherently understand. We cannot easily conceptualize exponential growth. Right. When something goes viral, we kick that term around a lot. And but our brains do not have a handle on what a difference it makes for things to compound over time. And the the difference here is that we think, okay, if I practice, if I and it's hard to put a number on something, but let's say I'm practicing guitar and each time I practice for half an hour, I get one percent better. And if I'm a you know, I am a pretty crappy guitarist, but if I get a tiny bit better, 
every day and I practice every day, how much better will I be at the end of a year compared to if I practice every other day? And the, our gut says, well, I'll be twice as good. I will have practiced twice as much. But if I get 1% better each time I practice, that's, that's compound interest on my, on my practice. It's not linear. And so we think about that and we say, okay, yeah, you're right. It's more than twice. It must be like five times better. And that's still way underestimating it. It's 37 times better after a year. And that is a big discounting mistake. That is failing to understand the magnitude of the effect of consistency causes us to say, well, if I do it, you know, if I skip one, meh, it's not that big of a deal. You know, every other day, every day, whatever, it takes me two years to get there instead of one year. Like, yeah, that's not true. It's 37x after a year at 1% gain. And so, you know, you can argue about what does it mean to, to have a 1% gain in skill on something. But I think the concept, the overall understanding of how much bigger that is than even our somewhat informed estimates of it when we say, oh, yeah, it's it's bigger than double, I know. Um, we still way, way underestimate the effect of of inconsistency, how much we lose as far as opportunity there. I, I, I mean, I, I've seen that firsthand in my life, and I remember mapping out the trajectory. I started writing a 1,000 words a day in 2013. Six months after I started, my self-published book became a Wall Street Journal bestseller, courtesy of Glenn Beck. Two years later, it led to a six-figure book contract. A year later, it was leading to five-figure speaking engagements. I was like, okay, there it is. That's, that's the example. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's the consistency. And for some people, it's, you know, writing. If, if you're a visual artist, drawing, like if, if you get out your sketch pad every day, where you're going to be five years from now compared to somebody who does it two or three times a week is just phenomenally further along the curve of skill development. And that's true if you're writing computer code. If you struggle with a new problem, a new coding puzzle every week versus somebody who does that every month, you are going to be a phenomenally better coder in you know, a few years time compared to the person who does it less frequently. And you can apply that to any skill development. So let's talk about how we actually set goals while accounting for these cognitive biases, because, you know, to your point, we have no idea what the hell the future is going to hold. But you talk about this idea of having a destination in mind. And it's kind of funny because um, we had, uh, I think, I remember correct, Stephen Shapiro, who talked about, you know, wandering worth purpose, we actually did an entire episode on goal free living. And he said, he was like, the point is not to be aimless. Um, he's like, obviously, you're gonna have goals. He said, but what you want to choose is a direction rather than a destination, which is kind of funny, because it, you know, it, it you know, runs contradictory to what you say. And I, I think that that's interesting, because like, I'm always looking to see where my guests contradict each other. And one of my sort of ideas, which I stole from Ray Dalio was that, you know, triangulation raises the possibility that you'll make a better decision where you get three different opinions. So like one of the things I realized as I was you know, taking notes on books, I saw one consistent pattern 
when it came to business. And this was mentioned in damn near every business book where it was like, if you want to make money, solve a problem for people. That was almost universally true. Right. And so I think where we can get hung up on this is just in the way we use the language. Like people use the term, the phrase set a goal to mean different things, right? Some people are saying like set a measurable short-term goal for, you know, saving a certain amount of money this month. And some people use, it's important to set goals to say, to have a grand vision for your business or your life, to have some big top level goal out there. And so I think we can get tripped up when we confound those things. When we say, well, somebody gave me advice about said goals are unimportant because I need to be focused on this other thing. And somebody else said goals are super important. We may not even be talking about the same category of of thing when we use the word goals in different contexts. And I think, you know, what you're talking about, like wandering versus being aimless and having a direction. And you contrast that to me saying, well, goals are critically important and having a destination is is important. I think we're we're kind of gesturing at the same thing, which for me like I talk about in the book, setting that goal, the goal that's most important to set is what I call the top level goals. Or some people would even say that that overlaps with like values that you're trying to live for. And that I think is setting a direction. And then once you have that direction to say, I'm, you know, and and I talk about the five factors of happiness or five factors of well-being, which come up time and time again in different studies, which is social connection, health or activity, curiosity, learning, and giving. So if you align kind of big goals in your life with one or more of those categories, that maybe isn't that different than saying, I'm setting a direction. Like I'm I'm interested in fostering social connection and keeping curiosity and learning alive in my life. That's different than saying my goal is to have an electrical engineering certification. And what I think it allows you to do if you have a big goal that sets your direction is it allows you to hold those other what I call mid-level goals much more loosely. Where if I think the way for me to be financially stable as a big goal, like, okay, I want to financially support my family. That's a big goal. One of the mid-level goals I've set for myself along the way is to get my electrical engineering certification. If I start realizing that electrical engineering isn't working out that well for me, I can, it's much easier for me to abandon that path and start down somewhere else when I realized that that wasn't my real goal. That was a step towards my real goal. So to me, that's kind of the the blend of goal setting as picking a direction versus goal setting as being really rigidly set in what I'm doing and where I expect it to take me. Amazing. Uh, 
this has been really awesome. Like, I feel like you just packed this with so many nuggets. I mean, I, I told you, I absolutely love this book. Uh, you know, I, I would say this and uh, Eric Barker's book are probably two of my favorites that I've read this year for people who are listening. You should both buy both of these books. Um, you'll hear our interview with Eric Barker probably. Uh, by the time you hear this, you'll have heard that. But um, I want to finish with my final question, uh, which I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think, and first of all, I want to say I love that question. And I think what it comes down to for me is a combination of both curiosity and intellectual humility, which uh, is something I mentioned earlier. And I think being interested in the world, in other people, and also being willing to admit what you don't know to say, I'm, I'm learning in this space rather than I know what happens in this space. If you, if you keep pursuing things that you're interested in and continuing to admit yourself that, to yourself that you don't know everything there is to know about those things you're interested in, you will develop in ways that no one can predict and will be unmistakably different and unique and and meaningful to other people. Wow. Um, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us to share your wisdom, your story, and your insights with listeners. This has been just really, really thought-provoking and insightful. Um, As I said, one of my favorite books that I've read this year. Speaking of which, where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything that you're up to? Yeah, I would send people primarily to my website, which is frederickbonson.com. Frederick is not spelled the same way everywhere, it turns out. So mine is F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-B-A-H-N-S-O-N.com. And there's some free resources from the book on the website. There's a mindset quiz. You know, we talked about growth and fixed mindset. You can take a quick interactive quiz on the on the website and get some insight into your own mindset and you can get in touch with me directly. And that far and away is the best part of it for me. I love it when people reach out. I hope to talk to people. I will get back to you personally. Um, so there's a form and my email on the website. So I encourage people to get in touch. Tell me what you're thinking. Ask me questions. Start a conversation. I'm also Frederick Bonson on both LinkedIn and Instagram. So uh, people can can follow me there, DM me and get in touch through those channels as well. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.